Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm chatting with Taylor Lawrence about Extremely Online, the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet. I was Simon & Schuster in 2023. Taylor Lawrence is a columnist at the Washington Post who covers technology and online culture. Previously, she was a technology reporter for the New York Times business section and a technology reporter for at the Atlantic and the Daily Beast. In tw- uh, she was a 2019 Knight Visiting Nyman Fellow at uh, Harvard University, where her research focused on Instagram and, and news consumption. She's a former affiliate at Harvard's uh, Brookman Klein Center for Internet and Society and currently serves on the board uh, of on the board of the Alliance for Technology, Learning, and Society Institute at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And for the purposes of today's conversation, I'll note she has 344.7 thousand followers on one social media platform. I don't know what it's called these days. Um, Some some guy keeps changing the name over there. Um, So uh, Taylor Lawrence, uh, Taylor, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you. I have actually more followers on TikTok. I have over half a million on TikTok. That's my biggest. <laughs> That's huge. Wow. Um, so. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You, you you can see the gray hair, so you know I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> so there's good. some academics on there. There's a lot of academics know, getting on there. There are. There's actually. I got. I got some colleagues who I really respect who do some really fun things on TikTok, and um, I know that my dean would like us on there, but. Um, alas alas um anyway could we start with you giving us a little bit of your history um and how you came to be the journalist and and now historian that you are yeah um well i i started uh in journalism in 2009 um i but started as a blogger uh after college like a lot of millennials uh, it was a recession and this was sort of the rise of blogging which i also talk about in my book um and so i started a blog on Tumblr. I, I had a blog spot initially, but it wasn't really until Tumblr that I started to get followers. Um, and I started, yeah, using the internet to kind of talk about technology and social media and 
it was sort of the early days of YouTube um, fame. And I had a couple of friends that were building audiences on YouTube. And I felt like the traditional media was not covering the internet very well. And um, so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try my hand at it, I guess. And um, ended up getting into media. And uh, I worked as a social media editor for a while at a bunch of media organizations and I would write on the side. And then I switched in 2017 to writing full-time. And I've always been really interested in history. I actually have my grandmother's book behind me. My grandmother was a historian and she oh, no. wrote several books on women's history. This one's called Feminine Ingenuity and it's about what? the history of female inventors. What's her name? Her name is Anne MacDonald. Anne MacDonald? Okay, I'll give a solid new books plug for the, <laughs> the collecting works of Anne MacDonald. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. She also has a history of knitting, which is a very grandmotherly uh, <laughs> book, <laughs> book topic. Um, but yeah, and... Um, yeah, I decided to write this book in in 2020. Um, yeah, I mean, so what what prompted you for uh, a history of social media? Yeah, um, a few things. I wanted to write a book. I, I think that a lot of the history of social media has been told through platform specific narratives. So we have a million Facebook books and like things like the social network, right? Or you know, a book specifically about YouTube or Instagram. Sarah Fryer's great book, No Filter, which is about the rise of Instagram, is behind me actually. Mm -hmm. um, and I love these books, but they really only tell sort of like a piece of the puzzle. And it's more of the corporate narrative. It's less about the user side. And so I wanted to sort of zoom out and talk about the rise of social media from the user side and not through the lens of any one company, but this whole phenomenon and specifically the half a trillion dollar industry that it's birthed, which is the content creator industry and kind of how that emerged alongside the rise of the social internet. Um, and I felt like in 2020, especially with the pandemic, like everyone was getting sort of hyper online and it was sort of this turning point where people really start to recognize it. I think it was about 20 years um, since all of it began. And so I thought that I would try and write this sort of recent social history of it. Yeah. And, and I, I like what you say in the introduction um, uh, about Extremely Online offers a social history of social media. It is about a force in an industry uh, that is uh, upending legacy power and the people, many of them far removed from Silicon Valley, who shaped this new landscape. And I thought that was such um, an important uh, intervention into sort of history of tech, which again is focused on platforms and engineers and, and the guys over the hill here in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. doing stuff. And you're really looking at um, maybe industry speak, but the user experience, but um, something that... Um, um, uh, you know, in, social historians talk about um, uh, Thompson's classic, the making of the English working class, how average people interacted with these forces and, and created their own identities. Um, uh, so I, I, as, as a academic historian, I really appreciated that, uh, that approach from um, coming from the journalist world. Um, so the book's divided into six sections um, and it covers this, what, 20, 30 year history. I mean, how, how long is this history? I would say it's 20 to 25 years. I'm yeah. like, what year are we even in now? Yeah, about 20. I think it really meaningfully started, yeah, in like 1998 to 2000, like with the rise yeah. of the blogging. Obviously, we had the internet before then, but yeah. I'm really talking about the social web, which... Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was trying to remember like some of the first blogs I saw. Uh, I remember there was this guy, Justin, who was blogging in 96 or something that my my dad turned me on to and... and um, it was this very, very techno-utopian sort of California ideology moment of, of the late 90s. Um, 
I think that was the first blog I saw, but, but things change when this becomes moves out of the realm of, of nerds <laughs> and in, into much more um, widely accessible. So, so the first section is online influence beginnings where you talk about this, the origins of blogging and then um, uh, changes and in, in we'll, we'll get into this, but you talk about this. I, I find this term so, so problematic, but the mommy bloggers, um, mm-hmm. but which are, uh, it's a it's a slightly misogynist term, but it's a definitely a, a historically identifiable phenomenon. I'll ask you about that, and then this the advent of this new celebrity, uh, the first creators, uh, the way YouTube led to this sort of break uh, breakthrough of creators as a force, um, new dynamics, um, looking at Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram, and and creating things like Tumblr famous, right? Uh, platforms for creators, or excuse me, the bat the platforms battle for creators, the way the different um, tech companies tried to recruit these creators to to generate content for their their businesses right the creator boom uh you got pink peak instagram and then um this sort of unsettled area that we're era we're in now uh influence everywhere where um tiktok has has come to dominate and maybe in a little bit you can sort of explain to us what's what's special about tiktok or historically uh important about tiktok um, so the book's got a really clear historical, uh, chronological trajectory, and again, as a as as a historian, I really appreciate it being taken through these phases. I can clearly identify some change over time. Um, and again, so this is this is really a history of the users of social media rather than the technology. Um, so let's let's talk about some of those early users. Um, like you you start. Uh, uh, I was sort of surprised with this, with talking about New York socialites um, and the influence of this this early blog and then how that led into this phase of the so-called mommy bloggers. So you tell us that story. Yeah. Um, so I start with the story of socialite rank, which I think a lot of people forgot. It's sort of been forgotten to time, but it was really... Some, some of us may, may not have known at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so in 2006, this blog emerged called Socialite Rank. Sorry, hold on. Um, in 2006, uh, this blog emerged and um, it was called Socialite Rank, and it started ranking socialites based on this variety of criteria. It was like, how many party photos were you at? What did you wear? You know, like, who, who are you hanging out with? All of these things. And it would r- issue these weekly rankings. And it completely upended the, the world of New York society. Like these women were losing their minds. Everyone assumed that it was one of the socialites themselves because they were like, well, how else would they have access to know what we were doing, you know, these parties? And um, they started like going to more parties. They started competing with each other and getting obsessed with these metrics basically and their ranking on this blog. And it turned out basically that it was not a socialite that was running the blog. It was these two random people that were these Russian immigrants that I think at one point were living in Staten Island and certainly were not socialites themselves. They were kind of doing it as like a social experiment kind of for fun. And they were getting a lot of information from online party photos because at the time that was right when there was these sites like Patrick McMullen and obviously Getty Images putting more and more photos online. So you didn't have to be at the parties to know what was going on and know who was there. And um, it anyway, it just caused complete chaos. And I thought it was such a good metaphor for kind of what the internet became, where like, we're all kind of being ranked and judged and perceived, even when we're not aware of it by like strangers. And um, uh, yeah, and I think it was also a really early example of 
a blog and sort of someone using the internet, this online random person to upend some part of society, in this case, New York high society. Right. And there's, there's obviously some really delicious schadenfreude of the, you know, the, the anxiety inducing uh, <laughs> weekly reveal of this list uh, amongst New York socialites who live a life where, you know, most of us could never imagine it's coming from a, yeah. uh, a couple of, you know, so-called scare quotes. Nobody is in, in Staten <laughs> Island, right? I mean, it's just, that's just like, it's got some like gentle class war stuff on there. That's great. So that, yeah, yeah I think that's that, that this great sort of early example of this, of these disruptive forces that are going to come. And so then, then you get into, again, the, uh, the mommy bloggers, who, who, who were the mommy bloggers and, and, and what were they doing? And then, and what did they reveal about the, uh, commercial potential yeah. of, of this, this crazy internet thing, right? Yeah. So around this time is also when women, Gen X sort of mothers started to really leverage the internet as well. Um, if you go back to the media and landscape of that time, especially like the 90s and the early 2000s, it was so misogynistic and like the vision of the version of motherhood that they were presenting in like these mommy magazines or like, you know, Women's Day was very sanitized and it was very kind of paternalistic. It was not really discussing things like postpartum depression or addiction issues or not always loving your husband or, you know, just tough things. And so these women turned to the internet and they started blogging really candidly about their experiences of being young mothers and also how they didn't feel, you know, these women were also like sort of this Gen X you know, they were, they were like the kids, they, I'm trying to explain how to say it, but like, basically they were career women too. Like a lot of them had careers. They had to give up careers. They had complicated feelings about it. They weren't really like they, this old version of motherhood didn't resonate with them. So they, it's, they it's, not the, it's not the hallmark channel vision exactly. of motherhood, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they started writing about it and generating massive audiences and um, it became this whole phenomenon. Um, Heather Armstrong is one of the most famous ones. Um, she unfortunately passed away recently. And she actually, you know, like a lot of these women, what ended up being very sad is a lot of them really did struggle. And that's part of the reason I think they were on the internet is because they didn't have maybe in-person coping systems. And so they would sort of turn to the internet for community. And um, yeah, they became massively popular. They were the first, I would say, to kind of really build personal brands around themselves and then commodify that. And of course they were met with massive amount of vitriol. I mean, people were so angry that mothers would monetize, like just running ads on your blog. Yeah, so, so the, what, what, what was the decision they started doing? And, yeah. and, and r roughly what year is this? So 2004 is when Heather Armstrong yeah. actually first put ads on her blog. And she wrote this really candid post just being like, okay, so I'm basically a full-time content creator and I now support, like I, you know, I do this blog 24 seven. And so I'm just going to put ads. It's going to help me cover some costs and I'm going to use it for family expenses. And people were not okay with this. I mean, people were vicious. Like she was accused of, you know, um, she, people tried to get her kids taken away. Like people were just like, you know, motherhood is this sacred thing and you want to monetize it. That's disgusting. And she was like, no, I, not trying to like monetize necessarily like motherhood. I'm just, I'm writing and I'm doing creative work and that I want some sort of payment for that. You know, this is, this is labor. <laughs> the, labor. The thing that you are reading, I worked on. <laughs> yeah. But I'd be compensated. Right. Yeah. And she would do, I mean, she would just write about all these things. And so, um, 
So anyway, that kicked off, that sort of normalized a lot in the industry where women started to be like, okay, you know what, we need to make money. And actually some of these mommy bloggers were so successful that they hired their husbands um, to basically help run their content businesses on the internet. And um, yeah, it just, it, it kind of ushered in, I, I would say they were the first kind of content creators, like true content creators, because I think there were these tech and media blogs and other political blogs at the time, but they weren't very, they weren't the sort of like personality driven um, media that I think like dominates the influencer world today. So, I mean, it was personality driven to an extent, but the mothers, I think it was just this like blurring of like personal and professional in, I mean, in the way that it is now. This all seems so obvious to us now, right? Like we, we can't, it's difficult to imagine a time before this and imagine, um, you know, that, that as this innovation and it, and like the relatability, I think is, is there. And that's something that you talk about much later on, like the, the importance of influencers, influencers being these relatable figures and then talking about the messiness of life. And then that, that introduction of monetization, which again, <laughs> in 2023, it's kind of difficult to imagine social media yeah. without that. Cause it's, it's, it's everywhere. I saw yeah, I literally saw, I followed this content creator recently. He's actually a man, but he's sort of has this family, you know, he posts about his family and his child's first day of school post was sponsored. It was like, I use so-and-so lunchbox, you know, because my kids are going back to school. And I'm just like, this is, I mean, I think that's a little dystopian, but mothers at that time, all they were doing was running ads on these blogs. You know, it wasn't even anything. That, and a lot of them didn't even show their children. They, they didn't even have photos on the blogs. It was all yeah. written content. So yeah. Yeah, that's and that was an important difference from that era uh, versus today, right? I mean, this is this is text based, and um, it's it's not the uh, the the Instagram moment that we'll we'll get to later on. Um, so th then this leads to this this development of what you call a new celebrity, and you talk about a couple of figures. I think Julia Anderson is is one of the more important um, stories you cover. So, you know, who was she, and and what what does she and this new celebrity represent? Yeah, it was Julia Allison. Allison, um, excuse me, Allison. Yeah, Sorry. no worries. She was one of the first multi-platform content creators, and she emerged in the second half of the aughts um, really as this kind of force of nature on the internet. I mean, she 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 went super viral initially for this column that she wrote um, in college called Sex on the Hilltop. It was kind of a modern take of Sex on the City. She was a lifestyle blogger and she wrote a lot about technology as well, actually like kind of pop culture tech stuff. And she had a really popular blog. She also had a YouTube show. Um, and she kind of published everywhere. She she called it life casting. She would do these things called head to toes, which were full body shots. And then she would sort of link the outfits that she was wearing and she would document the party she was at. And again, things that today it's, it, you hear that and you're like, yeah, okay. So what's so special about that, right? Every, there's millions of people that do that every day now. At the time she was vilified for it because it was not normalized. And her sort of original sin or like what got her sort of in the ire of Gawker, which ended up writing these really vicious articles about her. Um, was that she was promoting her blog in the comments of Gawker articles. And she would go in the comments section and say, hey, by the way, if you like this post, I wrote another thing related to it. Again, totally normal behavior these days, but um, people were really angry at this notion of like, that she had fame, I think, because fame was supposed to be something that was sort of like given to you. You weren't supposed to be actively seeking it out. And so she was called like, you know, attention whore and people were just really cruel to her, but she was actually very pioneering and everything that she predicted about the internet ended up coming to fruition. 
right? And in this, um, I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's that. It, I think I think she's coinciding with Paris Hilton as a phenomenon, which is slightly different, but has some parallels and the the kind of famous for being famous. Yeah, um, and, and she's and and um, uh, Julia Allison is is building it herself, right? Exactly. I mean, I think what what Paris did is Paris took her socialite fame and kind of leveraged it to internet fame through okay. yeah. the vehicle of reality television. Julia also ended up doing reality television later, but I think Julia truly built herself from the ground up. Obviously, she's a very attractive, young, privileged, like white woman, but she had no connections and she really built the audience that she built on the internet in 2006, 2007, 2008, when there wasn't, this is pre like Instagram, social media, she built this really dedicated online following, which she was then able to monetize successfully enough that she could pay rent in New York city and like live as a full-time content creator back in those days. And um, it, I just think it was really impressive what she was able to do despite all of this hate in the media. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, a lot of it being very misogynist. I want to come back and talk to you about that in a few minutes. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the, the book, as we said, the book is about, it's a social history is about the, the people interacting with this tech, but it's also important to understand uh, the different uh, forms of tech and the different platforms and what they're trying to create and how, how people interact with that. It's almost like uh, um, you know, Marx in the, in the 18th Brumaire that uh, uh humans don't make history uh humans make their own their own history but not in conditions of their own choosing right so the these people interacting with social media are act, interacting with the the tech of different platforms so could you talk about the um the di the different nature of like say facebook which was trying to create sort of um um would you call it sort of a closed friend experience, a certain group of friends, mm -hmm. uh, more like uh, in real life um, versus, I don't know, Vine and then today TikTok, which has a, a more sort of, I don't know what, expansive, rhizomatic. Um, it, it, yeah. It's not necessarily the, the people that you're associated with, and they're, but they're, they're both forms of social media. So could you, could you contrast those two? Definitely. Um, yeah. So Facebook, I mean, I think, and I actually talk initially about this sort of like MySpace version of, of social media, which was also very like fame driven and discovery driven. And, but I think it was too early. I think what people needed was almost this gateway platform, which is the, the sort of what Facebook ended up being, um, where it allowed people to kind of replicate their IRL social networks on the internet, but it was a very sanitized, um, sort of standardized environment, like everyone's profiles look the same. It was very stripped down, very minimalistic, very Silicon Valley. And so it sort of let people kind of connect with their friends, but it was supposed to be just about your friends. You weren't supposed to really necessarily add people that you didn't know that would have been socially weird and um, given the norms of the platform. Um, and so it wasn't really about discovery or fame. And in fact, Facebook was very anti-fame. They didn't like people using Facebook to just generate attention. They actually capped the friend list at 5,000 people, which might seem kind of big, but that can go pretty quickly. I can say this as a college student that had Facebook, like, you know, I added all everyone in my sorority very quickly. I think I had a couple thousand friends, like pretty much immediately on there. But, um, you know, they didn't want something like MySpace where you had like these content creators like Tila Tequila or whatever, having like 50,000 friends, um, because at that point you were just using it as a self-promotional tool. So, um, I think Facebook at that time, it took off because it was that gateway, but then the dominant model of social media ended up being a, very, a much more fame-driven ecosystem of the one-way follow, right? With mm -hmm. which we saw Twitter introduce and then Instagram. And now it's more of a like, I follow you, but you don't necessarily have to follow me back. 
Yeah. And so, so what were, what was the, what were the interests of the different platforms? I mean, why, why would Facebook oh, want yeah. one versus, yeah. uh, versus, uh, another, another form at Twitter and, and Vine and, yeah. and a few others. Yeah. Well, Facebook didn't want, I mean, Facebook wanted to be like the anti-MySpace in a lot of ways. They wanted to, to create a closed environment because they saw, they saw self-promoters and these, these content creators as like spammy and degrading the experience of the rest of the users. That wasn't really true, but I do think that there was this like, they wanted to create this safe environment that people could feel comfortable using at a time when a lot of people didn't feel comfortable kind of like connecting online in the, in the way that we do now. It was, a, there was, it was so different back then because pe- there wasn't social media yet. So a lot of people, like, they, they actually didn't put much of their life online. And I talk about the rise of Facebook newsfeed actually and how it taught us, it sort of conditioned us to post for a public audience. And all of us sort of started to get more comfortable with like posting for public consumption and this notion that like we're, you know, we have this audience inherent. Um, but then with, platforms like, I mean, Twitter and then Instagram, which was launched in 2010 and then Vine, which launched a few years later, like that was more about discovery and, and inherently more about like fame. And it was less about like your I replicating that IRL friend group, but it was more like finding interesting people. Same with YouTube. It was like, Hey, find interesting people, find interesting content, discover interesting things. And so Facebook never really nailed that discovery. And I think that's what ultimately hindered the platform because I mean, look at something like TikTok. TikTok is actually even more about discovery than Instagram and, and Vine and all them. With with um, TikTok, you don't actually even need to follow anyone. There's no burden on the user. You open the app and through data collection and other sort of signals, it determines like what you might be interested in. And it just serves you this endless feed of content that you'll be interested in. You don't even need a single follower. You don't need a single, you don't need to follow anyone to discover content. And you as a content creator don't need a single follower for your content to go viral because everything gets sucked into this algorithm that will distribute it to the correct audiences this anyway. Right. And, and, but that's predicated upon there being these creatures known as mm-hmm. creators or influencers. Um, yeah. And then they're, they're not the same thing. Um, could you, could you unpack those terms and, and, and talk about how, how they developed in this, in this history? Yeah. I would argue that they are the same thing oh, the same just thing. because yes, because I, so creator in its modern usage, obviously the word creator is not a new word, but it's modern sort of understanding of it was actually coined by next new networks, by that, that team at next new networks, which was this early multi-channel network, like sort of YouTube business where they were signing lots of YouTube stars. Next new networks called their, the people who created content on YouTube creators. YouTube did not call them that at the time. YouTube called content creators partners. That's why even today it's called the YouTube partner program, the monetization program for YouTubers. Um, And when YouTube acquired Next New Networks um, to basically deal with these partners, um, the people at Next New Networks were like, well, partners is not a very good term. It's confusing because people then think that they have a formal relationship with YouTube. We think creators is better because they are creating content. So YouTube adopted that language. But the word creator for the first half of the 2010s was still very associated with YouTube. So people use very platform specific language to describe what kind of like, like if what they were creating on. So you had Viners, you had Instagrammers, you had bloggers. There was no like platform agnostic term because you, creator at the time was still very affiliated with YouTube. When Vine died and you suddenly had 
all of these people suddenly that were multi-platform creators, but they were like, they weren't, you couldn't really call them a Viner anymore because they were a Viner, a YouTuber and a blogger and an Instagrammer. And at that time, right when Vine died in 2015, 2016 is when it really started to decline. That's when tons of money was coming in from the advertising industry. Influencer is a term from the advertising industry. So they always called influencer marketing. Influencer marketing has been around for decades. It's just sort of influential people that we're like giving money to. So the term influencer was a term, a marketing term that was applied to creators. And that's how that platform, okay. that term took yeah. off. Interesting. Anyway, Interesting. I, yeah. I just like to like set the record straight on it. Cause I actually did a lot of research into the history of the term creator and people always like, where did this come from? And I'm like, oh, here's how it all emerged. And it only flipped back to creator in around the time of the pandemic, because that was when the tech companies sort of all decided to adopt the term creator. I think influencer is kind of not a great term actually. And it still speaks to sort of this marketingness, And it didn't really resonate with people that were like, well, I'm not really an influencer. I kind of just like and building a business on the internet and creating content. And yeah. so people preferred that term. And yeah, and from, from a layman's perspective, influencer, I don't know, it just seems a little shady to me. Like it's- Yeah. Because um, it's affiliated with like the smarmy marketing industry, you know, yeah, whereas creators well, yeah, just I mean, it's like a more like- so, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I'll yeah. tell you a, a, a short anecdote. I, um, I think maybe around 2004, 2006. Um, I'm, I'm a surfer, and I was on a on a surf trip in Indonesia and uh, on a boat. And there was this surf kind of surf guide. He was just kind of this guy hanging out in the boat. He's a photographer and um, just 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 such a bro, right? And he was telling me about this marketing idea he had that he was how he was going to make it rich, and he, he was calling it brovertizing. And it's like, <laughs> hey, you you're a bro, I'm a bro. Like, I just need a platform to be able to tell you like things that I think are cool. Like, I think these surf shorts are cool, and I could you know not advertise but brovertize for you. And I was like, oh my god, like get me off this boat. I can't stand this guy. <laughs> and, of, and of course, he like graces the pages of a Patagonia catalog not long thereafter, which is like the ultimate brovertizing catalog. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, like, literally. it's like people they're like, oh that's my bro. Like I oh, oh what are they wearing? <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's just fascinating so that the, the interplay between big business concepts and then also like what you're looking at, which is this more organic people interacting with this technology and, and these opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um so we uh you talked about uh YouTube being you know, this, this new force, what's, what's revolutionary about YouTube for social media? Yeah. I mean, YouTube just was sort of upended a lot of the entertainment ecosystem, um, through user-driven content. And again, they were the first platform to allow content creators to monetize, um, it, at scale in a meaningful way. Obviously bloggers could put ads on their blogs, but there was no real sort of formal partnership or like ways that, um, that you could do that in like a systematized way, the way that it was with YouTube. So YouTube launched their partner program in 2007 and it spurred this early generation of content creators who were able to make a living through their YouTube videos. Um, and I talk about some of them that early, like the first content house, um, which is a house that a bunch of content creators live in uh, called The Station in 2009 um, in Venice Beach and how they kind of collaborated together and um, that actually ended up being maker studios which ended up being this multi-channel network that was bought by disney um so the business really evolved out of this like collaboration between content creators 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and then early on this is um uh the the youtube uh creators um have have a a higher there's a higher bar to entry they're generally they're they're using Mm -hmm. real cameras and i mean it's a higher production value or or maybe maybe running off their laptops to a certain extent but then but then things change when all of a sudden we all have these uh, small computers with cameras in our pockets, right? With the introduction of the iPhone and other smartphones. So how did, how did that change the the dynamics of the way that people could interact with social media? Yeah, like, YouTube yeah, started as, yeah, YouTube started as this very desktop experience. Mm-hmm. And actually YouTube didn't even launch a mobile app until 2011. And that mobile app was for consumption only. There was no like user interface for posting, which I think was one of the biggest mistakes in tech because what happened just a year and a half later is Vine launched um, and Vine was this mobile video editing tool where you could record and post mobile, you know, video from your mobile phone very easily, six seconds long. And um, that ushered in this era of short form video and it allowed users to post video very easily. Obviously the iPhone 4 in 2010 also had the self-facing camera, which had people putting themselves more and more in content. Um, 2013, the year that Vine launched is also the year that selfie was declared the word of the year. Um, And so it was like this time when people were increasingly putting themselves in their content and documenting things. And it was more and more video content. And that's kind of what spurred Vine's takeoff in 2014 sort of like 2013, 2014, like Vine sort of became ascendant because people suddenly wanted to create content. They wanted to put themselves in content and they wanted to upload video content easily to the internet. And Vine was the only platform allowed them to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, that, 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 that's just a transformation, putting that technology in everyone's pockets. And then the, mm-hmm. that platform allowing for the easier editing and, and the production values. And it, and it sort of changes the consumer's expectation of what the video is going to look like. It becomes more normalized to have these handheld uh, self-facing camera uh, um, uh, videos. Um, So let's talk, let's talk about gender and um, and, in the internet, which um, yikes, um, this is a a really ugly history. And uh, um, you write uh, misogyny was a constant of online life. Uh, dating back to mommy bloggers, Julia Allison, and the MySpace scene queens. But women on YouTube were held to impossible standards for which their male peers were exempt. I, I read that, and then I was thinking about, um, you know, you have a discussion of Gamergate, and um, uh, the the this is sort of going back in the narrative, but like the, the MySpace scene queens and the reactions mm-hmm. there. Could you talk a bit about the the 
history of misogyny in this social history of social media. Yeah, I mean, it's so wild, but I, I didn't even set out to like make that a theme, but I was just so shocked at how pervasive it was and how much it shaped the early web um, was sort of like the misogynistic hate like that these women got. I mean, women generally pioneer social products. Like every Silicon Valley person will tell you if you make a social product and you have tons of young girls using it, like that's probably going to be a successful app um, or like young moms. Like women are very like good at sort of making these platforms successful, but then they deal with just obscene levels of hate. I mean, even the term mommy blogger, it's interesting you mentioned before, was this like very kind of like negative term and it was considered very like pejorative. Um, it's, and so I con- it's really so many- condescending. I mean, it's so condescending. And I talked to so many women because a lot of women ended up really embracing it. And, um, and a lot of women hated it. And I kind of, but it ultimately was the term it's like the term influencer. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people rejected it, but it's like, that's kind of the term that emerged at, at that time. And um, so women had like complicated feelings about it. Some ended up totally just, they, they self-described that way because it's a very easy way for people to understand what it is. But um, yeah, it was, it was just really sad to see that time and time again, these women are basically like run off the internet. You mentioned Gamergate, which was this misogynistic harassment campaign against women in video games. Um, and it just like showed very early how the internet and how these social platforms could be weaponized. And it was dismissed because it was against women. The media dismissed it. I think the Silicon Valley leaders dismissed it. They just didn't take these campaigns seriously because they didn't see them. They often, the men sort of building it, like they weren't experiencing this hate. They would thought it was this niche thing when in fact it was this like pervasive problem. And it really drove a lot of incredible women out of off the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I would argue metastasize into 4chan and yes. and leads to 2016 and January mm-hmm. 6th and and so many things and I mean it it just seemed so right there with um with Gamergate uh, yeah and like what Twitter is now is literally like I mean even Elon Musk is like platform people involved in Gamergate like it's just it's become so rampant and so horrible I mean I think we I wrote a lot and this is not in my book as much. I don't think, but I wrote about the Johnny Depp trial and Joyce mm-hmm. Amber Heard and sort of the the content that was created around it and the, the content that was incentivized around it. And I think no matter what you think of that trial, you can't argue that the content that was incentivized around the trial was super misogynistic. And I interviewed all these meme page creators that were like, yeah, I actually don't even, I didn't even watch the trial, but anti Amber Heard content does really well. And again, it's because hate against women does drive engagement. And I think that's why a lot of these platforms also don't crack down on it. So, I mean, this raises a larger philosophical question that's maybe unfair and unanswerable. I mean, is is this something in the nature of uh, communicating via the internet, via social media, or is, is social media merely amplifying existing aspects of society? Yeah, I mean, this is like a gigantic question, right? But I mean, no, it's both. It's both. I, yeah, I think about that a lot, especially just in terms of not just misogyny, but like racism and all forms of bigotry. I write, I write a lot about sort of like discrimination on the internet, and in so many ways, these platforms are a reflection of the content that we consume that we desire. I mean, I wrote about, uh, I've written a lot about sort of like, um, you know, TikTok, and because of the algorithmic feed, and because it. it feeds exactly what the user desires and responds to so well, it's very hard for, for instance, black content creators to get 
um, visibility into the TikTok feed. Like they don't get as many followers, they don't perform as well. And I've spoken to so many people that are experts in like at TikTok about this and everything. And what they say is it's a reflection. This is a reflection. Like we can't force people to engage. Like people just do not, because of this inherent systemic racism, like they don't want to engage with black creators. They're more likely to swipe past them. And when it's a beautiful young blonde girl, they're more likely to linger. And so that's a positive signal, you know, for the algorithm that to feed more content. So I think some of this is biases, but I do think that there's things that the platforms can do to not buy into that, right? The fact that these platforms are aware of these problems, they should build systems to kind of facilitate more equality and less hate and more sort of free expression um, from marginalized groups. So, which I don't think that they've done really, because they don't want to handicap growth and handicapping growth means sometimes sort of like tamping down on some of that stuff. And it's and it's easy just to point to the black box of the algorithm or say that's that's what the user what the interaction is want. generating, right? Yeah, and it's um, true to a point. Yeah, it's true yeah, to a point, yeah. but it's like okay, so you know that those are the users' desires. You should caution against that, right? Like you should, so you should build, you should nudge them in other ways. Yeah, and and you note that there's um, accounts like um, at influencer pay gap. Um, that try and draw attention to this, especially for um, the way in which um, black and other underrepresented influencers are not making the same the same money. They're not being, accessing yeah. monetization of the of their their content, their labor. And you, you give the the example of the Renegade Dance, which is initially performed by uh, Jaliah uh, Harmon, um, and she's young young teenager. I mean, she's really really young at the time, right? Yeah, she was fourteen. Four, 14. And she created like the most viral dance on the internet and couldn't get credit for it. And yeah, she she put it out right, and then it's not mm-hmm. until. Um, some more attractive uh, older white lady you know, women um, start uh, start start performing it. That's when it takes off. Is that? Yeah, yeah. It took off. Well, it actually took off. It sort of took off like on Instagram and then made it to TikTok. And uh-huh. exactly, it was just these like really attractive white creators that were doing this dance that blew up, and it was this very catchy song. Jalea was like, "Well, I made that dance. She tried desperately to get credit. She couldn't." I found it actually took quite a while for me to find who she actually was um, and get in touch with her and do this New York Times story that exposed it and talked about these issues and raised a lot of questions about credit on the internet. Um, But it's, you know, I mean, going back to the brand deal stuff, thankfully, Jalea, because of that New York Times article was able to get credit, but there's so many other creators that don't get credit that never get their due. And also one thing that people say, especially like a bunch of content creators shared with me, like, rejections that they had gotten from different brands. And one thing that people were saying over and over again is like, we're a premium, we want premium advertising and we're a premium brand. A premium. And that basically just seemed like a way to say, we don't want black people around. Like it was like this racist kind of like undertones that these creators kept having to deal with, or that they found out that they were getting paid significantly less than their white counterparts, even though they had a bigger, more engaged following. So a lot of this is just like racism in the advertising industry, but it plays out online in these really nefarious ways. Right, right. You know, I, I thought your book was really, really insightful into into that into that history. Um, could you tell us about the history of the uh, the group that gathered at um, or the groups that gathered at a building in LA at 1600 Vine and how how these various influencers began to game the um, the Vine uh, platform and what was yeah how, how are they doing this? 
Yeah. So in the mid 2010s, um, all of the pretty much every all the biggest stars on Vine decided to move to this Hollywood apartment complex called 1600 Vine. It was on Vine Street and Hollywood Boulevard. Um, very, very appropriate. Um, a little, little on the nose, but go on. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. People thought Vine was sponsoring it. Vine was not. They actually didn't like these creators at all. And they kind of had a very tenuous relationship with them because, as you mentioned, these creators could very quickly monopolize the app. It was, they sort of had a chokehold over, you know, like the content that got distributed because they all had the biggest platforms and the biggest following and they were creating the most viral content. This is pre-algorithmic feed. So to get distribution, you really, if somebody reshared your Vine who had a really big platform, that would like boost you to a really significant level. And so they ended up just basically monopolizing the app and controlling it. A lot of their content was kind of off color humor that the founders of Vine very much did not like. And it all sort of ends in this confrontation in this conference room um, at 1600 Vine between the executives at Vine and 20 of the biggest creators. And they're basically like, look, we're generating so much engagement on your app. We're running this app. We should be getting paid. And Vine was owned by Twitter at the time and, of course, had no money and couldn't pay them and was kind of like, we're not paying you. And also we couldn't pay you if we wanted to. And that really angered all the content creators. And so they ended up fleeing um, to other platforms. And some of them are some of the biggest creators on the internet today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. Just the, again, this is the social history and like how these, these people are getting together. And like, you know, I, I can't stand like what, what I've seen of their content. I can't stand. I know it's, it's, it's so lawless common denominator, yeah. but on the other hand, like, it's such an incredible story of individual agency and, and people, yeah, gaming, gaming the system. And also, um, um, one other thing I will say is like talent relations, which I don't think these tech companies were prepared to do. Like, I think like the, this notion of how to manage talent and deal with talent, like this is stuff that like the entertainment industry has always understood, but like tech companies never did. And they, suddenly you have these power users that are essentially many celebrities and like famous influencers and they didn't understand talent management so they just didn't understand how to interact with these people they were sort of a nuisance they didn't like the control that they had on the app and yeah it just became a mess yeah yeah um could you talk about the uh the 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 crisis that actually wound up not being a crisis around uh paid content and the way in which paid content was sort of slipping in to various ads i think you mentioned um dj khalid you know right around his jet ski and if it's actually an ad for shirak vodka right yeah like i mean there's there's ways in which products are constantly slipping in um i see this happen all the time I, one thing that really got to me the other week was um after the fires in lahaina um some uh i won't name names but a very prominent um uh, social media influencer from the surfing community was giving lots of uh, doing lots of, uh, you know, face forward uh, camera talks about the, the crisis, but he always had a Red Bull hat on just oh. perfect. And he's, he's a, he's a, one of the biggest Red Bull things. And it was like, it was so subtle, but I knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. Uh, and I probably, I don't know, hopefully surfers won't listen to this one. But <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be banned from Maui for that. Anyway, um, I digress. Um, about the uh, crisis around paid content that that led to the um, uh, putting the the hashtag ad in uh, in Instagram and then the the fake uh, the fake ads. Yeah. So in 2017, the FTC issued this ruling, basically saying, "Look, you guys have to disclose when things are ads because at that point." There was no real standard and people were just federal trade commission right I mean, they, yes, they have the to federal trade commission. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah 
And they were like, you have to disclose ads because there were all these high profile examples of influencers pushing products that they did not disclose at all that they had a financial relationship with. And so they determined like, look, you have to put a hashtag ad. If you don't, you're going to be subject to huge fines and you know, it's going to destroy your business. So everyone wrote articles like this is going to be the end of influencers. The content creator industry is dead. They're going to have to say that they're advertising now and everyone's going to turn on them. What happened was the complete opposite. Actually, these content creators started disclosing ads and sponsored content became a status symbol where suddenly everyone was like, whoa, wait a minute, you got a deal with, I mean, this is just like hyper-capitalism, but like, wow, you got a deal with Gucci? That's so cool. I'm at, that's actually really aspirational. Or like Walmart, like go you, that you're getting your bag. And so people started creating fake sponsored content, pretending to be parts of brand deals that they weren't just to project the sort of um, the image of success online. Like, look at me, I'm so successful. I have all these brand deals, even though they don't have brand deals, they're literally just doing advertising for free on the internet. And it's, that's still all around. I saw somebody posted my book cover that acting like they got a galley when they didn't, which I thought was hilarious. Oh, that's, that's, Wow, that's I was something. like, I'll send you one if you want one. But like, yeah, they were like, so excited to read. I've got this galley. And I was like, wait, that's the picture that I posted on my Instagram that you took. <laughs> so people really want, I think like when, you know, I talk about this Christian Dior ad campaign that happened where they gifted, I think it was like 150 influencers, this new bag, and the influencers were supposed to promote it and they did promote it. But what happened is actually hundreds of other influencers that weren't even part of that campaign bought the bag and pretended like they were part of the campaign because it was a status symbol. And, and would thus boost their yeah, more I mean, followers. It, and, and, and I mean, they've got, it's not just status, right? It's, no, it's, it's part of their business model of building their own brand for their account, right? Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, you, you get rewarded with more followers. And this drives brands, especially luxury brands, crazy because they're usually pretty careful about who they do deals with. And also say you do, say somebody pretends to be affiliated with your brand and then that person gets involved in scandal or does something wrong. And now they're affiliated with your brand. They've been promoting your product. So it's just a lot of sticky issues. And the FTC is totally unprepared to like regulate this area because I think it's all so messy and I don't even know how you would go about doing it, but. Yeah, you know, you know who else drives crazy? my generation of punk rockers. I mean, this is the most yeah. punk thing ever. Like, oh my God. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm still mad at Henry Rollins for doing a Gap ad in the 90s. Uh, I'll never forgive him for that. Um, never forget. Not, not <laughs> but, these uh, days. No, this is, this is what Gen Z embraces and thinks is cool. I think it's like a total embrace of capitalism. I think it's I'm, like, or, or just acknowledgement that like, we have a very broken society and if you can get your money that's good it's it's very weird i mean or, i interviewed a, yeah or a total embracement of consumerism consumerism that's what i should say consumerism yeah, rather than yeah capital. Yeah. I, yeah i interviewed a bunch of kids when i wrote about this phenomenon for the atlantic when it really started to happen and all these teenagers that were pretending to have brand deals and um yeah they were just like well it's so cool to have to work with a brand and that's just the goal and i was just like oh my god that doesn't seem very cool but i guess maybe if it's red bull you know and you love red bull <laughs> yes, that's that is cool to you. it gives you wings yeah <laughs> hashtag ad um um <laughs> I, I i i could talk to you for forever here but we i want to be cognizant of the time and um uh one thing i wanted to ask you about is it's just sort of explain uh how TikTok is 
revolutionary for for interaction. And you talk about the way in which TikTok becomes basically a reality show for Gen Zers. Yeah. That, um, that I think you, you said uh, Gen Z has its own reality TV and app live from Hollywood, no television screen or entertainment execs needed. And here it's, it, it really is disrupting that old guard of gatekeepers that you talk about. Yeah, I think TikTok is sort of like unlocked just the whole social internet, um, again, because of that algorithmic and focus on discovery, algorithmic discovery. Um, and also it's just, it's a very easy short form um, app to create on. It's like the burden for creation on YouTube is so much higher. It's video first, it's very compelling, and it allows people to get peeks into lives. Like I mentioned, it is like this reality show for everyone on the internet. It is the default form of entertainment for a lot of people in Gen Z. And actually TikTok itself positions itself that way. It talks about itself actually as an entertainment platform more than a social platform. Um, and it sort of wants to be this place for entertainment and connection. Um, so it's completely taken over. It doesn't help that it's, uh, or it doesn't hurt that it's owned by, you know, ByteDance, which is a multi-billion-dollar Chinese tech conglomerate uh, that can pour billions of dollars in marketing as well uh, to make the app, you know, to get traction. I think it was very hard for any other app to compete with Facebook and Google, um, and I think ByteDance was able to successfully do that with their product and with a lot of marketing. And you, you talk about this this celebrity ecosystem that's grown around it. So yeah. you know, it stems from Vine and, and elsewhere, but is like really blossomed around this. And and I mean, I, you know, darn you, Taylor. I had to I had to Google all these people I've never heard of, and then watch their <laughs> their videos and their and their and their posts to make sense uh, to like get a real sense of what's going on here. And it's it's it, it's it's beyond famous for being famous. It's it, it's it's it, again hist historically it's a, it's a really fascinating transformation of what celebrity means mm -hmm. um, which i think yeah. yeah i think fame is more like it's less like a thing where it's like there's celebrities and non-celebrities and we all just have like a modicum of it like we're sort of famous to our specific groups or like we all have it's just more of a like sort of commodity that people have these days yeah no and i i, I Again, I want to be cognizant of the time, but um, I just wonder if you could reflect on some of the things you mentioned at the very end of the book where you, you talk about, on the one hand, rise of social media unleashes this incredible creativity and gets rid of these traditional gatekeepers and is, is really a democratizing force in terms of cultural production in some ways. Uh, at the same time, I think you say it's a quarter trillion quarter trillion dollar industry has emerged out of no nowhere with quote no guardrails or protections for the workers within it and it and you, you write how this pressures all of us to commoditize ourselves and our lives and sell ourselves so I've, I've heard you in other interviews say that you're you're actually kind of a tech optimist but just in mm -hmm. terms of where goes our culture um, how do how do you feel about these two forces here? On the one hand, this democratizing force; on the other hand, uh, this commercialization, commodification of ourselves. Yeah, the commercialization and commodification is dark, and I don't love that. Um, but at the same time, I am a huge believer in sort of independent media and expression, and I do love that these tools have lowered the bar for creative expression for millions of people. I think that's incredible. Um, I wish that we could build platforms that were less focused on engagement and revenue and kind of like these business objectives and get back to those early sort of internet ideals of expression without trying to get a brand deal, you know, like cre just creating content just for joy, kind of. Um, I, I, I am a tech optimist just because I 
do believe that like the world can be made better through technology. I'm not necessarily optimistic about this current landscape of social media because I think it's pretty dark and dystopian. Um, but I do think that, you know, the whole point of the internet is to connect people and that's what's built to do. And so I think as we sort of continue on and building the internet and these new platforms rise and fall, we can hopefully build platforms that facilitate deeper connection and more meaningful online experiences and less about sort of like, you know, just promoting the latest lipstick and whatever else, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not to end on a dark note, but I, I do want to applaud your book for really being so empathetic, empathetic and showing the psychological impact of being a, being in this uh, social media ecosystem had on a number of these, these creators. And um, some of the, some of the stories you tell are, re are really dark, especially and it's particularly young women yeah. um, from the scene Queens to, to more recently um, that um, it, just the, the psychological toll that this, being engaged in this is that people just sort of jump into and this this dream life that becomes this like brutal job that that turns into something else with the, the trolls and so forth. Anyway, sorry, I didn't want to end on a dark note, but no, but, 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 I think, I, but I really I want to say, praise your book for for communicating that side of it so well. Thank you. And I will say too, like, yeah, people don't think of it as labor. They still, and this is true for, I think a lot of people that work in creative industries is their labor is so devalued. And I think what a lot of people are doing on the internet, what a lot of people are creating is so valuable and they really are putting a lot of labor and they deserve, they shouldn't just be working for free, you know, for YouTube all day, like making content, like they deserve protections and they deserve a safety net. And these are bigger problems, I think, than probably the content creator industry. But um yeah, it was a fun, it was actually really fun to write this book. And I'm so glad that you read it. I know there's dark parts, but there's a lot of pop culture kind of history in there too. And it was, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It filled, filled me in on a lot of things. I was blissfully, blissfully ignorant of, but boy, I, I did have several Abe Simpson moments where I was you know, <laughs> standing on the lawn, shaking my fist at the clouds, <laughs> get off my lawn, you kids. Um, hey, before I let you go, uh, two, two last questions. Um, First, can you recommend um two books for your audience? the audience um give a pitch to grandma yes i have to, i know my grandma's like i have to actually recommend blood in the machine which i just mm -hmm. started it's about the luddite movement brian merchant from the la times wrote it it's so interesting everything i thought about luddites is wrong yeah. and it's oh my god this book is so interesting so i can't recommend it enough i loved it okay um and then if you like my book, another book, I actually reviewed it for the New York Times years ago, and it's, it was called Lurking by Joanne McNeil. Um, and it's also about it's it's also about sort of like the rise of social media very much from the user side, but like kind of more from average users, like more of us, like all of, so she weaves in a lot of like personal history with the internet. And I just love that book. As somebody that's an internet book aficionado, I read all of them. That's one of my favorites too. So both Great. of those. Great. We'll look for those. Um, and what are you working on now? And what can we hope to see from you next? Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm writing my stories for the Washington Post, although I've been right. taking some time off to do book promo stuff. So yeah, you can read my work at the Washington Post. Sometimes I write magazine features. Please follow me on Instagram, TikTok. Uh, I have a newsletter, taylorlorenz.substack.com. Um, I use pretty much every platform um, to talk about this stuff, except, except Twitter. I'm just, that one is not don't don't go on there for me uh but i'm on yeah I'm everywhere else i'm just at taylor lorenz okay hey um taylor lorenz thank you so much for chatting with me today i, re I really enjoyed this conversation and, and and also really enjoyed your book thank you thank you so much for having me yeah.
This has been a conversation with Taylor Lorenz about Extremely Online, the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet out with Simon & Schuster in 2023. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.